You're listening to the Empty Stringers Podcast, where every week we talk about locating, catching, and the conservation of redfish. My hope is to share with you what I'm seeing from the polling platform so that together we can catch more fish. Think of it as your weekly fishing report. Welcome back to the podcast, folks. I'm your host, Matt Parrish, and things are relatively back to normal. Uh, Two weeks ago, I had my lovely wife on the podcast, and then last week, I sat down to talk with Drew Turner, and we told you guys that we are starting the Redfish Network. That's something that Drew uh, has been dreaming of and, and had plans for, and I'm lucky enough to be a part of it. Here are the details. When you go to listen to the Empty Stringers podcast over the next month, you're going to be able to find it in two places. Right here, where you've always found it, on the Empty Stringers podcast page, you're also going to be able to find it on the Redfish Network page. So wherever you get your podcast, click on the little magnifying glass search bar, type in the Redfish Network. It's going to pop up. You're going to see my podcast and the Paddler's Playbook. So, two good podcasts in one location. That's the goal. That's the plan. And that's that's really it. So, the more of you that will migrate over to that Redfish Network to uh, listen to the podcast, the better. Because come October 19th, it will no longer be on this channel. They're all the episodes are going to be on the Redfish Network channel. So that's it. That's all that changes. Uh, let's talk some fishing. I was on the water twice this past week, and the fall pattern, it's on. It's happening. It's doing its thing. It's early fall pattern. So what that means for schooling redfish up against the grass uh, is that these schools are not going to school and do their thing for as long as they do later on in the fall. You may see a school break loose. They may chase the shrimp and do their thing for, I don't know, five minutes, uh, under 10 minutes usually, and then they fall off. They come off of a shoreline and, and drift out in the middle of a back lake. They, uh, the, the action just kind of dies out a lot quicker. But there are a ton of schools. Uh, each trip that I was out this past week, I think we chased seven, eight, maybe even nine schools of fish. And uh, the action was steady. It just You had to be there when it was happening because if you were too far away from that school, you were, you were going to miss it. So we would pull over and uh, wait around and hope that they fired back up. And they did in a lot of cases. But also that whole snowy egret hopping on the shoreline and, and uh, least turns uh, flying above these schools and little red-winged blackbirds crackling everywhere and, and alerting you to this activity, that's not happening everywhere yet. That is a Galveston Bay kind of thing. Freeport hasn't really hasn't really cranked off into that yet. Uh, I'm not sure what it's looking like any further south than that. 
I was talking to Kevin Franklin with uh, Kevin's Outside and Kevin's Custom Painted Lures. And he was telling me kind of what he was seeing in the Freeport area. And speaking of that, the, uh, well, what he was telling me was the, the schools are not up against the grass. They were finding a couple of schools out in the middle. And the middle uh, of a back lake, when you have a school and fish, that's more of a, a spring to summer pattern. And when the fall really breaks off, those fish are going to be up against the grass. They're going to be nosing in the grass. Some of the schools we saw this week were so far up into the grass, the flooded grass, that you couldn't even put a lure in front of them. So they're really getting up and they're finding these baby shrimp that have hatched out that are up in the grass. So that's what's going on. The red tide has sparked some dialogue on social media this past week. I saw a picture that was posted by a guy flying, I guess he's flying a helicopter, uh, coming back from one of the rigs. And uh, he took the picture around Jamaica Beach. I'm not seeing any red tide issues in uh, in West Bay, which is where I spend most of my time. I'm just not seeing it. Uh, Freeport, Kevin, if you follow him on social media, you saw him post a video of some dead fish. It was mostly gar and mullet and stuff like that. But there were some dead fish, and it did appear that the red tide has affected the Freeport area a little bit. It's making it hard to be out there. It's the coughing and the and the irritated throat. And uh and there's been some fish killed uh in it. So I don't know how long that's gonna last. I would think that with the water temperatures cooling off, we should see a reprieve from that soon. And so let's talk about water temperature. We were you know, three weeks ago, we were still in the low 90s at the peak of the water temperature. I'm not seeing it get above 87 uh, this past week. And we were it, we had some pretty hot days with low wind and came off the water a little afternoon. And water temp was around the 87 mark. Still hot, but not crazy, crazy hot. So it's not affecting the fish as much as it was in the heat of the summer. So that's been a good thing. It's really been great fishing conditions in the morning because you have an outgoing tide that's beginning to happen in the morning. It's not happening all the time. We're still getting some incoming and then and then outgoing, a really quick incoming, a quick outgoing uh, on some mornings, and then other mornings you're getting a, a straight falling tide until the middle of the afternoon, which is fantastic. So those are the conditions on the water that we have right now. I went out with uh, my buddy Paul on Thursday. We got out with the fly rods. We had good conditions for it. Low wind. The water clarity was actually really good. And we got onto some fish early. Paul had three hookups. And all three hookups early on, his leader broke off. Now, he he and I both use the same type of leader. It's a Rio 16-pound test tapered. It's for redfish and trout. On, so he, he was using his rod 
broke the leader off twice. After he broke it, he cut two feet off the leader. But before he he did that, I said, here, use my use my rod. I just put a brand new leader on it. He hooks up with a fish, snaps the leader. So I cut two feet off of mine. Ever since I did that and he did the same thing, we didn't have any issues after that. He went on to catch four or five, I think it was five uh, fish on the fly after that. So he had eight total hookups, five fish on the fly. I caught two fish on conventional tackle, uh, just keeping my rod. What I'll do a lot of times, if someone's fly fishing on the front, I have a rod holder welded to the uh, polling platform on my boat. I keep my rod in that holder. And if we're on a, a school of fish and the guy on the front is fly fishing and he hooks up with a fish, that school will usually break loose or they'll keep going and I'll be able to pick a fish off as they're leaving. You know, as long as they didn't, uh, you know, scatter too hard, I can usually pick a fish, a fish up on when they're on the way out. So, uh, did that once. And then the other time we had a school of redfish coming down the bank, uh, got over there, turned the boat, set Paul up for a cast. He laid a beautiful cast against the grass redfish eight and uh and he hooked up well i had noticed that it looked like there was another school that was about 30 yards behind them but it, it was uh, it wasn't quite enough disturbance for me to really tell and there weren't any birds on it and uh so i just watched and anchored down and as paul's fighting this fish i then see that there's another school that school uh, a fish was probably, you know, 15 yards off the boat. When I realized it, I pitched out there and we doubled up and uh, landed both of those fish. Um, Paul caught a trout on the fly as well. And and that goes hand in hand with something I want to say about what I, and take this with a grain of salt. I'm not trying to give people fly fishing advice because I am the most complete novice at fly fishing that you could imagine. Not very good at it yet, still learning the ropes, but here's what I've noticed. A lot of fly fishermen will stand on the bow of the boat and they will hold the fly and wait for uh, a fish. They'll wait to physically see a fish. We fish muddy water down here. It's not crystal clear like it is in Port O'Connor. I'm encouraging everyone that fly fishes off the front of my boat. You don't have to cast every second that you're up there, but when you see a point, when you see a drain, when you see uh, a little cove, when you see an area that redfish like to um, frequent, cast your fly into those areas. You got nothing better to do. You're on the boat, right? You're fishing, right? Just because you don't see a fish in there doesn't mean there's not a fish there. There have been four redfish caught on the fly on my boat because the person up there was blind casting. Uh, maybe even five because I think Thorsten caught two fish blind casting on my boat. Uh, Paul's caught uh, two fish and Mark caught uh, one fish blind casting. So... Uh, just because you don't see the fish doesn't mean that you shouldn't put the fly in the water. Uh, you're missing opportunity, I think. 
that, like I said, that doesn't mean that you have to stand up there and wear yourself out and throw, you know, 10,000 casts on a morning. But when we're polling past an area that has a very fishy looking spot, you should hit it. It's good practice. You'll be ready when the moment comes uh, for that that shot at a fish you can look at. So also, uh, the schools, you know, sometimes you don't, I mean, they're so deep up in the grass right now that sometimes you're looking at a fish because he's up in the grass and his tail's sticking out or his back's coming out of the water. And you think that he's the lead fish and he's not, he's at the end of the school or he's in the middle of the school. You got to, you got to really watch and pay attention and put that fly out in front of them. And even when that one fish that you're looking at is not accessible because he's deep up in the weeds, put the fly four or five feet out in front of him because there's probably another fish there. So um, that's all going to help increase your chance at hooking up. If I have a guy on the front of the boat that, uh, and it happens, and I, I before I started you know, throwing the flower out, I, I just didn't know, I didn't really know what I didn't know, but I would see guys a lot of times hold the fly and wait and wait and wait. And that makes for a long day. If you're, if you're fishing Galveston, that can make for a really long day if you're not chasing schools. Um, you need to put that fly in the water and give them a chance to eat. So I'll crawl down off my uh, soapbox with that. But me and Paul had a great trip. Uh, the action, we didn't even launch until 8.15 in the morning. Uh, and we came off the water at noon. So what was it? Nine or ten uh, hookups landed. Uh, landed, what did we land? Five, six, seven. Landed seven fish. Had ten hookups. Um, and so... That's a pretty good day for such a short trip. The next day, uh, Chris and I went out, and uh, it wasn't even 7.30 yet. And we had Chris on a school. He caught one on the fly, uh, had him fished in a barrel in a little cove right in front of us, and uh, nailed that fish on the head with a fly, and he ate. It was awesome. And uh, we went on to catch... uh, I think we caught six. I can't remember now. I think we caught six or seven fish that day as well. Uh, We had uh, an island, a grassy island, that was probably, I'm going to say it was 150 yards from a boat. This boat was anchored up. They They didn't even have an anchor. They had run the boat up onto a grassy island to keep them from moving. And they had been sitting in this spot for a while. And that spot is kind of an, it's not a choke point, but it's an open kind of an entrance to this back lake that I wanted to go fish in. But you could get to it from other areas. So no big deal, right? But we're watching them. And uh, I'm up on the polling platform and I'm watching this island. And uh, there's three least turns going nuts. Above the shore of this island, there are four snowy egrets on the island, and they're hopscotching in circles around this island. I watch them go around once. I watch them go around twice. And I'm thinking, if I tell Chris 
about this. He's going to want to go over there, and I'm a, I'm worried it's a little too close to this boat. But the more I thought about it, I'm like, they're anchored up. They're not fishing that island. They've had plenty of time to get to see this school, and they either don't see it, they don't know what's going on. I don't know. So I tell Chris, hey, look over there. He's like, oh, we got to go. So I said, all right. So we go, we go over there. We decide that we're going to one, two, three it, uh, meaning we're going to count to three and throw. I, and so we get over there. The school's coming around the island. I said, Chris, you throw at the front of the school. I'm going to throw at the back of the school. And uh, I said, one, two, three. I let him throw about a half second before I did. He throws at the back of the school. So I make a last-minute adjustment and throw at the front of the school. And uh, I hooked up instantly. Uh, he missed on the first one, had to reel back in, threw out again. He hooked up. We doubled up and uh, and caught those fish right in front of that. But, I mean, it was 100, 150 yards from that boat. And then released those fish and just moved on further into the back lake and uh, – Ended up catching another fish in that back lake and had a good morning. But I think that boat, they they obviously weren't doing the same thing we're doing. They were like fishing with cut mullet or live shrimp or something like that. Uh, Totally different scenario. So uh, we had two good days on the water. And y'all know that I've caught the bug for fly fishing. Now, I realize... Fly fishing is for certain circumstances. It's in areas where you have high visibility. It's when you have schooling fish. It's when the wind is low, when the conditions are right. Like, I get it. It is, to me, a much more fun way to catch a redfish. And so, being a guide and now having had several fly fishermen on my bow... I decided to invest in a nice fly rod setup because I wanted something that I could, if if a customer was coming to fish with me and they wanted to use my gear, I wanted to put something really nice into their hands. And so I went to Gordian Sons. Andy down there helped me out. It was one of the best shopping experiences I've had. He, uh, he told me the whys and the whats about all the different ranges of rods. And uh, we settled in on the Scott Sector Rod. Nine foot, eight weight. Nice rod. I got some Scientific Angler line. I got a Sage Enforcer reel with a large drag dial on it. Sealed drag. It's black. Uh, it's a nice setup. And so... If you book a trip with me and you don't want to bring your stuff or you're tired of using your stuff and you're thinking about, you know, upgrading, uh, come come throw my rod. I want to put it in the hands of uh, customers because I think it will just enhance the experience. So I also will have a leader on there that won't snap off on you. So going up to that 20-pound leader because I don't trust a 16 anymore. And maybe it was just a bad batch. I'm not sure. Uh, we'll we'll see what happens uh, with that. So I'm excited. I've fished with it a little bit. I have. I don't think I've hooked a fish on it yet. But uh, I'm going to try to change that 
um, this week. We shall see what happens. We have a high tide uh, going on, and the tide, I mean, it's been 2.3 at the Galveston Rail Bridge uh, on the on the high tide, and then it's dropping out at the lowest. It's it's somewhere around the 1.2, 1.3. That is prime fall conditions. Everything is showing that we are in the first chapters of the fall push. You're going to start to see uh, that spread out to other areas. And it doesn't mean, though, that every marsh is going to have that big hatch of shrimp. You're you're going to have areas there's a marsh that I fish in the in the spring. It is money every spring. It's probably better than the marsh that I fish most of the time in in the fall. Uh but for whatever reason in the fall, it's kind of dead and uh I don't see a whole lot of activity. There are places uh, that are a little farther away from my normal stomping grounds that usually light up, but they don't usually light up until the end of the fall. Late October, middle of November, they go off, they push on through December. I have a theory, and every time I end up talking about a theory I have, it ends up kind of getting blown out of the water uh, with whatever I see on the water um, in my next few trips. So I'm just going to lay that out there. I think that areas that have sandy bottoms have later hatches of shrimp. Uh, or the shrimp don't hatch in those areas and they end up flooding in with the tide. I'm not totally sure, but the mud bottom areas tend to spark off with the shrimp hatches for the fall sooner than sandy bottoms. If you have areas with a lot of shell, they tend to not be quite as as fast to, to kick off with the shrimp hatch. It's usually mud bottoms, grassy shorelines. Uh, grass patches in mud, that's even better. you know. So that's kind of what I'm looking for. I'm looking for shorebirds. If you got ibises on the shore, don't ignore them. They're eating stuff that is washed up into the grass. And they're on shrimp, just like the egrets, just like the redfish. Uh, So don't ignore them. I have caught fish in times when the fish weren't schooling just by hanging out near the ibises and uh, watching what they're doing and fishing near them. You can pick up some fish doing that. Um, So that is the story. uh, I've got some trips booked this week and next week, but I've got a few more openings for the fall and I would love to fill those up. So if you've been thinking, I want to book a trip, I want to get on some schooling redfish, the probability that we are going to see a school while we're out on the water is high. It's not guaranteed. I always have uh, a small handful of trips every fall and it just For whatever reason, things go bust and nothing happens. But so far, so good. We've been chasing a lot of schools uh, so far in these last couple of trips, and I only see that continuing. 
until we get a couple of really big, uh, really big dumps. And when we do, that's not going to kill the schools in the back. They're going to go right back to doing what they've been doing. The only thing that's going to change is the trout are going to flood the main lakes and the open areas of the bay, and they're going to get on uh, shrimp under seagulls in the main areas out in the bay and in, the, in some of the m- bigger, deeper main lakes. And all you trout fishermen can go have a ball doing that, and you can leave my redfish alone in the back of the marshes, and uh, that will be cool because they're still going to do their thing. You just got to give them a day or two to recover. The tide floods back in. It goes right back to uh, to doing what it's going to do. So that's where we're at. That's what we're up to. You can go to com and book a trip. I added that link to the Airbnb it is now on the on the website. When you go to the homepage of the website, it says Holiday House. That is the link to click on the Airbnb. You can look at what dates are open. You can do all the booking through there. You can also uh, schedule the trip that you wanted, the fishing trip that you want to take. You get a pick from a half day or a full day. Uh, you can schedule it right there on the website. All the open dates are lit up. You click on it, put in your information, Bam, trip is booked. You pay a $50 deposit. And then I am going to reach out to you um, before the trip, usually about a week before the trip, and I'm going to ask you some questions. Hey, what type of fishing are you looking at doing? Are you are you going to want to fly fish only or a mix of fly and conventional? Are you only conventional? Uh, what Are you bringing your own rod? Do you need to use mine? All the kind of questions that we need to know to make sure that I'm ready for you and that you're ready for the trip and that we have a good time out on the water. So uh, be expecting that if you book the trip. Now that we got all that business out of the way, um, let's do our Bible tidbit. It's been a couple weeks since we had a legit Bible tidbit, and here we go. So in the past, we had talked about Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt and how before they made it to the promised land, Moses struck the rock. And because of that, he was, God was like, look, you're not, uh, not going to go into the promised land. You're going to die here in the desert. I'm going to pick somebody new to lead the people into the promised land. That person was Joshua. Joshua gets selected by God to lead the people. And the first thing he does when they are on the brink of the land that they're going to take, that they're going to take over, he sends two spies into the city of Jericho to scope it out. He wants to see the lay of the land. What are these people like? What are their warriors like? And get a sense of of who they're up against. So the spies go in, and uh, they run into a prostitute named Rahab. Rahab has uh, less than stellar real estate. Her house is built attached to and kind of up in the wall of Jericho where the city... Basically, if you had a house that was built into the wall of a city, that was the least desirable place to live because when someone attacked the city, you were the most vulnerable because you were right there at the wall the more inner parts of the city were the more desirable places to live. 
And uh, so Rahab is a prostitute, uh, which is not a very respected uh, vocation, as you can imagine. And so they run into this prostitute, and she tells them, listen, I know that uh, your God, the God of Israel, is I know that he has given our land into your hands. I know that we're toast. And everyone here knows it. Our hearts have melted within us, is what she says. We're afraid of you guys. Uh, I know that your God is a big deal, and he's going to give this land to you guys. And because I know that, I'm going to help you. And she says, in return for me helping you, I want you to spare my family. And so she hides the prostitutes on her roof under some thatching. And then when the search party that's looking for them, because word got out that there were spies in in the city, uh, she diverts the search party and says, look, they left. They, they went out this way. I don't know where they went, but go that way. Search party leaves. She lowers them down keeps them overnight, and in the morning, they set out, right? She spares their life. And they tell her, look, we're going to spare your family when we come and take over this city. We need you to tie like a a red thread out above your door, almost like the lamb's blood in the Passover was on the doorpost of the Israelites, right? It's very symbolic there. There's this thread that is tied outside of her door, and because of that thread, they know not to uh, attack anyone in that house. So she's spared. So Rahab is a prostitute. She's not uh, of Jewish descent. So she's not part of God's people at the time. She's what you would call a Gentile. Well, Israelites move in. She becomes, uh, she basically marries uh, a Jewish uh, man, and when you go and read Matthew, I think it's, I think it's Matthew chapter one. You notice that Rahab is one of only five women that are mentioned in the lineage of Jesus Christ. So, God, in His sovereignty, uses a Gentile prostitute to save the lives of the spies and and aid him in his plan. I don't even like to use the word aid him as if God needed our help with anything, but he allows Rahab to participate in his plan for his people to take over the city of Jericho and, and move into this land that he's promised them. And she marries into the family, so to speak, and is like the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus, the Son of God. That's pretty fascinating to me. I love it. Uh, Her name is not mentioned in that genealogy by accident, because typically women's names aren't mentioned in the genealogies. Uh, But you have very important uh, women that are mentioned in those genealogies. Uh, I think it's, I don't know all of them. It's Esther, Ruth, Rahab, a couple others. And so um, that's our Bible tidbit for the day. You do with that what you will. I thought it was pretty cool. And um, and that's it for me, guys. If you would like to send me an email, uh, you can reach me at emptystringers at gmail.com. 
You can follow me on Instagram at empty underscore stringers, on the TikTok at empty stringers, and uh, shoot me a note, shoot me an email. I'd love to hear from you guys. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, hopefully uh, having a, a whole new world of opportunity with this Redfish Network. And we're going to keep on pumping. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you guys. I hope that you get out and catch some fish this week. And we'll talk to you later.